Black Doctors Podcast, Season 6. Hello, welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I am Stephen, your host. This episode features Dr. Kimberly Johnson Hatchett. She is a neurologist with a non-conventional path into medicine. She joins us. She shares her story, how she went from sales through a post program and then became a physician. Currently, she works as a full-time physician, mother, and administrator, and she shares how she balances this unique practice of medicine. She's also the author of the book, Retrospective Calling, Looking Back to Create Your Path Forward. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I think you will as well. You're going to take something new that you can use and incorporate into your life to be just a little bit better. And I want to give you a heads up. Next month, we are starting a uh, new series. We have some incredible guests lined up. We are partnering with the Tour for Diversity. This organization helps increase diversity in the healthcare professions. They have an awesome tour bus that makes the rounds, but we thought, hey, let's bring them to you. So they join us and they're taking over the podcast. It is a non-hostile takeover and you're going to hear from some of their mentors. You're going to hear about the things and the programs that Tour for Diversity has to offer for students that are interested in healthcare professions. So... Don't miss out. Next month is going to be an incredible wealth of information. After a quick word from our sponsor, we'll jump into today's episode of the show. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. That is definitely true when it comes to medical education. Picmonic has partnered with the Black Daughters podcast to support our efforts to increase diversity in healthcare. The Picmonic system works by combining mnemonics with amazing graphics to help you retain information and ace your exams. They have resources for medical students as well as other healthcare professional students, including PAs, nurse practitioners, and more. Check them out by visiting the link in the show notes or going to picmonic.com. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I am Stephen, your host. This week, we are speaking with Dr. Kim Johnson Hatchett. She is a neurologist and so much more. She has a fascinating story that she's here to share and how she's incorporated different aspects of administration and other tasks into her career as a neurologist. She graduated from St. Louis University for medical school and attended University of Kansas in Kansas City for residency, after which she completed a fellowship at the University of Kansas in clinical neurophysiology. Of note, she is the author of a book entitled Retrospective Calling. I'm excited to hear more about that. Looking back to create your path forward, Dr. Johnson Hatchett, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I am so glad you're here. Uh, The more I read about you preparing for this interview, the more questions I had. And I don't quite know where to start, but we'll, I guess, start (laughs) at the beginning, um, as we we typically do. You did not initially go into medicine. So coming out of college, kind of where were you? What was your life like then? Hmm. So coming out of college, I graduated from University of Missouri, M-I-Z-Z-O-U, Mizzou. (laughs) for my um, business degree in finance and banking. I had no thoughts of medical school, except when I was in high school, I had done a one year or summer of 
like scholar program at UMKC's six-year med program. So I thought about it for a hot second and then realized they thought, oh, I'll do business. I'll do something that has to do with math because I love math. Hence is why I got a degree in finance. And I was married to my college sweetheart. We moved to St. Louis and I was working for Otis Elevators. It was a very up and down business. Anyway, I worked for Otis <laughs> Elevators and um, was in... <laughs> anyway, I'm really goofy because I'm a neurologist, so it kind of comes with the territory. So uh, I was working at Otis Elevators as a um, account manager and was you know, doing my thing. And one of my girlfriends said, you're in corporate sales. The holy grail of corporate sales is pharmaceutical sales. That's the holy grail yeah. for all sales reps because you get the company car, you get to work from home, and usually they cosmetically make you look good. Like you could get LASIK surgery. You could get all these perks with being a pharmaceutical sales rep because they want you to really? look nice. Yeah. There's a, I, mean, you, I don't know if you've noticed that most sales reps have a look about them. Um, and there's a reason why, because we want, they want you to be pleasing to the doctor's eyes when you present the medications to them. So it is, you, you, have, you, you can't, you can't say that though, right? You can't say it out loud. You just have to, it's illegal, right? No, of course they don't say that, but you, you <laughs> look around at the, you look around at the meetings and you see the sales reps descend on the meetings and you're like, why are they all so beautiful? There's a reason. Um, hmm. so yeah. So anyway, so I worked for them and during that time, my marriage was falling apart and I realized that I had an aptitude for medicine. I really enjoyed reading the package inserts. Who likes reading package inserts? I did. So hmm. we had to memorize those package inserts and I found myself reading the pharma, you know, pharmacology, understanding the, the, the disease process. And I thought, this is fascinating. And I remember talking to one of my docs because I was selling Vioxx back then, which is crazy. That's an old school drug. I was selling that. And one of the docs was like, you understand the like mechanisms of disease way better than any sales rep I've ever met. You need to think about going to medical school. And I said, you know, I've thought about that. And I just met um, a black physician who was in fellowship who introduced me to another black physician who had moved to St. Louis, who introduced me to another black physician. And so my circle of friends started to become all physicians or wives of physicians. And I was just always around all these people in medicine because I was a sales rep. And that just kind of catapulted me into thinking that maybe I could become this physician. At the same time, I got divorced and I realized I had no one else to answer to but me and God. And I thought, okay, let me figure this thing out. Let me come up with a plan, figure this thing out, and see if I can go to medical school. And that's how it all kind of began. So how long did you work in sales? Gosh, so I worked in sales for about four years. So a couple of years at Otis, and then a couple of years at Merck. So yeah, I for, for a couple of years in both of those, both of those uh, places. So you took a leap of faith. How did you <clears throat> figure out that next step or that first step to getting into medicine? So again, those friends that I had were like, okay, you need to take this test called the MCAT. And I was like, <laughs> okay, is that like the GMAT? You know, and they were like, no, it is not like the GMAT. And then they said, okay, do you have any, what are the prerequisites? You know, what prerequisites do you already have? So like many students, I started off at Mizzou Chemical Engineering. 
So I had already taken okay. all the chemistry classes that you needed for medical school. So I didn't need to take those. And they were like, but you, and I'd already taken some physics classes. Didn't do well, but I'd taken them. So I thought, okay, I have to take biology. So they basically set me down and said, these are the prerequisites that you need to take. We need to find a job that you can do this and work. So I knew a friend of a friend. I started working at night at General Motors. So I worked at night at General Motors as a logistics manager. And during the day, I would go to either community college or to University of Missouri-St. Louis and take prerequisites. So I would get up and take these classes and then take a nap and then go to work at night. So I did that for a couple of years, just taking biology, organic, Jesus, nightmares, (laughs) Um, organic chemistry. I took the physics again. I took a little microbiology and all the while I'm kind of studying this MCAT situation. And so I got done with the prerequisites, did decently okay, took the MCAT, did okay, didn't do great. And I thought, oh, what the hell, I'll just try for it. So I applied and didn't get in. I thought, okay, Mm -hmm. well, beef up my resume and uh, maybe I'll do some volunteering and maybe I'll do this. I didn't know. And applied again and didn't get in. And then one of my girlfriends, who's an ophthalmologist, was like, you need to do a post-bat. I was like, a what? And so she got me on FAFSA. It was a website that had all these post-bats on it. And so I found a post, all these post-bat programs and applied to a whole bunch of them and got into one. And I got into the one in Erie, Pennsylvania, at LECOM. <laughs> and I thought, okay, this is my shot. I'm going to shoot my shot. And I moved up there, didn't know anyone. And um, I remember I got there and I didn't know anyone. And I talked to this same friend and I said, what have I done? I don't know anybody up here. And she said, Kim, I did a fellowship in Argentina. I don't even speak Portuguese. You speak English. You'll be (laughs) all right. Go find a black person and talk to him. And so I literally was in like Michael's and I saw another black person who had like a university sweatshirt on. I walked up to him and said, brother, look, I just moved here. Where are we? And he said, oh, you're on the wrong side of town, sister. This is where you need to go. Um, My cousin does hair. And this is the church. You you, you and me. Okay, this is the church you need to go to. Here's where the soul food restaurants are. And like that one conversation just opened up another opportunity, you know, a world. Um, And I survived a year in Erie, Pennsylvania, because I just sought out the opportunity to do it. And that catapulted me into going to medical school. Wow. That is incredible. <laughs> and and of note, you are a true Midwesterner. You did a brief foray into the East there in Erie, Pennsylvania, and then went right back to the Midwest. So I assume coming out of that post back, you were accepted to St. Louis University. Yeah. So I was accepted to a few schools. And I thought, you know, if I could get, I was trying to get into KCUMB. That's a DO school here in Kansas City. Um, and I thought, okay, if I could get in there or KU, that would be great because my family's all here. Um, mm-hmm. My ex-husband's family's all in St. Louis, but I knew a lot of people in St. Louis. So I was like, okay, if I go to St. Louis, that's great. I got into KCOM, which is Kirk, you know, Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine. And that's like the the mothership for for DOs. That's where it all began. Oh wow! Yeah, that's like the the the, the mecca for DOs. And so I got in there, and I thought, okay, if I'm going to go DO route, I'm going to go to the best one. To me, the where they originated, I'm going there. 
And I got into a summer program at SLU doing research. And I was like studying peroxidase reactions in mice. So it was crazy. Yeah, I was like sacrificing these mice and doing like um, looking at their duodenums and it was wild. Um, but I did it because I was like, I need some research experience. I'm going to go in and do this. Right. And I actually liked it and realized that I actually like reading research papers. I thought it was a lot of fun. But at the time, I'd, I was on the wait list for SLU. And that same friend who told me, why don't you go on ahead and do this post program just so happened to be on faculty at SLU as an ophthalmologist. And she was like, so what's going on? Why are we going to KCOM, Kirksville? I said, yeah, it's going to be a good experience, blah, blah, blah. She's like, girl, why don't you go to SLU? I said, because I'm on the wait list. She said, oh, okay. What I didn't realize is that when I told her that, she made an appointment with the person who's over the admissions committee and sat down with him and said, I understand you have this young lady named Kim Johnson on your waiting list. Yes, I need to tell you about her. And she went and advocated for me. Mm. Next thing I know, I'm getting a phone call that I've been accepted. So that's how I got into SLU, the St. Louis U. So wow. it's, it's something. When you think about that, that lets me know that everything was being orchestrated. Mm-hmm. And I just had to just be obedient and go and do it. And, and it's, it's tough when you're in the struggle and when you're in there making decisions for a career that you may never end up practicing in. But then when you look back and you can see how everything was organized and laid out and you met just the right person at just the right time, it's, for me, it's always been very humbling to, to see how I almost didn't make it. But by God's grace, here I am. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I mean, that was the, the kind of the premise behind the book, because I looked back and realized all of these things were happening over and over and over again, and that everything was happening for a reason. My divorce was for a reason. My reason, my, mm. my, my first marriage was for a reason. I would have never made it to St. Louis had I not done that, but I would have never met all these people had I not been in St. Louis. And, yeah. you know, so all of those things, everything happens. For a reason, and I, you, but you really only see that when you look back retrospectively to figure that out. So there's so much more we need to get to, but briefly, when you got into medical school, <clears throat> were you ready? You know, I was ready, but I felt like I had imposter syndrome because I remember carrying around the little canceled check. You know, you had to write that check that said that you were going to pay your tuition. And then I had my acceptance letter and I had a copy of that check in my backpack just in case they came up and said, who are you and why are you here? And I'd be like, oh, no, I got my canceled oh, wow. check. I have this. I am supposed to be here. And I think once I passed anatomy and I mm-hmm. had a dream, I remember having this dream that I was being interrogated by my anatomy teacher. And she kept asking me, which foramen does the middle meningeal artery go through? And I kept saying the foramen spinosum and I kept saying it. And she said, you're wrong. And I remember waking up out of that dream, like, and I had my skull, like everybody had a skull back then. I had my skull sitting next to me and I like pushed the skull out of the way and grabbed my book. And I looked and I said, no, that's right. It is the foramen spinosum. And I realized like, I'm supposed to be here. I know this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think after I got done with anatomy, that kind of went away. That went away. Then it was trying to figure out what kind of doctor are you going to be? So, yeah. And and as a quote unquote non traditional student, you were older than your classmates in medical school as well as in residency. Yeah. So what was that experience like? 
it was interesting because they would start crying about stuff and I'd be like, this is not that deep, y'all, really. You know, this is not <laughs> rocket science. We're just trying to learn about the body. There's way bigger fish to fry. There's bigger problems in the world. Just calm down. So, yeah, these and I would say you kids have not really lived. You have no idea. But yeah, so I was I was one. It was myself and one of my close girlfriends were the two oldest kids at the class. And um, they it was fun to hang out, but they would do stuff. And I'm like, oh, no, that's that's a no. <laughs> you all have fun with that. You're not coming camp. Nope, not coming. Y'all let me know if you need me to come pick you up somewhere because <laughs> I have a feeling that somebody's going to need to get picked up. So, yeah. <laughs> but they had fun. That's fantastic. And, and so uh, at what point did you start your family? Was that during residency or medical school? <clears throat> so during, so I didn't meet, well, I didn't re-meet my now husband until um, my last year in medical school. Like okay. I randomly, I ran, it was real random. We ran into each other at the gym and he was sitting outside the gym and I was just going to be dating a trainer at the gym. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying listening to the show. I wanted to take a minute to talk about TrueLearn and thank them for sponsoring the Black Doctors Podcast. TrueLearn is a medical exam preparation company that helps you outperform on your boards. If you are a medical student or resident physician, you should definitely check out their products. If you sign up, please use the code BDPODCAST and you'll get a discount. They have resources for both DO students as well as MD students and even physician assistants. When it comes to residency licensure, they offer question banks for over eight different specialties. TrueLearn gives analytics that give you insight into your study habits, your question responses, and tracks you along with your peers. Students and residents average 20% improvements after completing a TrueLearn smart bank. Check them out at truelearn.com. And again, remember to use the code BDPODCAST to receive your special discount. Now back to the show. And so uh, at what point did you start your family? Was that during residency or medical school? <clears throat> so during, so I didn't meet, well, I didn't re-meet my now husband until um, my last year in medical school. Like okay. I randomly, I ran, it was real random. We ran into each other at the gym and he was sitting outside the gym and I was just so happy to be dating a trainer at the gym because I was trying to lose some weight. I said, let me go ahead and date this trainer so I can lose this weight and not have to pay for training. Um, yeah, and, just, oh, yeah. <laughs> I was, I went, <laughs> and I went in there and I was going up there and I saw this car and I recognized his license plate. And I saw him sitting in the car and I thought, damn, I forgot about this dude. This was a good dude, like straight laced, good dude. And I went over to him and I said, and I was like, okay, let me look him up on Facebook. He's single. Hang, hang, hang on. What? How did you remember his license plate? Well, he's a nuke and it said something about nuke uh, for you or it was, it was like this, this play on the word nuke. And that's how I remembered his license plate. And um, he was known for these license plates. Like when, in college, my only real memory of him was his license plate. I didn't really <laughs> know him in undergrad. Like we didn't, we kind of were one or two degrees of separation for years when we kind of, once we met each other and really started knowing each other, we were like, God, we should have met in so many different settings. 
But in those settings, it would not have worked out. And so like he and I dated before I went to Erie. We dated for a hot second. And I had just gotten divorced. He had just gotten out of a really, you know, deep relationship. And we were just not ready to be around each other. And it didn't work out. But we kept, we stayed friends. And every once in a while, I would see him out. How you doing? How you doing? But when I saw him that day, I was like, that he was the one that got away. He was a good dude. So I remember looking hmm. him up on Facebook, seeing that he was single. I'd sent him a little private message and said, it was good seeing you. This is my number. If you want to hang out, here's here. We can do this. And when he responded, I told the trainer the next day, I said, look, I met somebody. It ain't going to work out. And he was like, huh? I said, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is the one I'm, I'm, I'm going to put myself out there and it's about to, about to go down. And so I can't, can't talk to you no more. <laughs> and I was like, I'm just going to remember right. what, what you taught me how to do so I can continue to lose this weight, <laughs> but this ain't going to work out because I wasn't even serious about you anyway. So, you, you know, I'm selling the rights to your story to uh, Tyler Perry. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do Don't do that. <laughs> Oh man! So on top of that, relationships, family, you yeah. uh, being a an older student, you you still progressed. You went through residency um, in neurology. You went on to fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, along the way, how did you start to balance that career, that education, and being um, in a relationship, becoming a wife, becoming a mother? You know, I. It's hard because you see your friends around you, you know, with nannies, um, like right now at this level, a lot of my friends have nannies or have help. And I have my parents and I have my sister. My sister lives about a mile away from me in, a, in the same subdivision, but I don't have any like hired help. And I think my husband and I made a decision that if we, you know, both of us were older when we had our kids um, and um, we were older when we got married. And we decided that we were going to figure out what we needed to do to be there for our children. And so it's been some sacrifices. Like, well, I'm, there's a reason why I'm not in private practice. There's a reason why, you know, we are in this region of the country. It's because we're able to have the family support that will allow us to do a, a few things. But there's so many things that I would still love to do. But I know that I have to, number one, be a mother and a wife. So, like, that's that's my number one priority. And uh, what does that look like with your current practice mm-hmm. and um, working? You, you mentioned it. Uh, I thought it was very good balance versus blending. Yeah. So um, it's a balancing act because when I'm at work, I'm at work. It's a balancing act because I know my kids have been to the hospital. Like I've been on call, got called in, <clears throat> excuse me, called in for a stroke. And I'm like, well, y'all, y'all got to come with me. And I have the nurses like, look, take care of these, <laughs> take care of them. Well, I take see the stroke patient and give them some TPA. And then I, you know, it's, it's balancing everything at the same time. So like right before you and I got on, I was cooking dinner. Like I was like, I, I was like, I got 20 minutes. Let me cook dinner real quick and make sure I have dinner ready for them so that I don't have to worry about that. All my husband has to do is serve it. Um, all of those things, you just start to really, and it comes in, it happens so effortlessly when you allow it to just be, you allow things not to be perfect. You allow things to just happen. Um, and so it's, it's a balancing act now because I'm the chief of medicine of my hospital. So I'm over all of the subspecialists, right? And that position is a leadership position in the hospital. I work for the chief of staff, but he understands that I'm a wife and a mom. 
he's a husband and a father. So he understands that. And he's like, I need to do better. Uh, I need to be a better example of somebody who has a work-life <laughs> balance because he does not have balance. And so I think that he understands when I'm like, my kid is sick. I have to stay home, but I work from home. So I'm on my mm. computer working, even though my kids sleep and, you know, sick or whatever. Um, it's just all about communicating and getting things done despite all the other things that happen, you know, in your life that you want to have happen. Like you can do all of it. You don't have to really sacrifice anything. I don't believe. That's good. Let's dig into that career portion because you, you completed a fellowship. So advanced training in clinical neurophysiology, but as you just mentioned, you're the chief of medicine. So what has happened in your career to take you from a, a neurologist, a neurophysiologist to becoming the chief of medicine of a hospital? So when I worked for, I've always had like management positions. For some reason, I always end up managing people. Even in undergrad, I was like the manager of this like part-time gym job. Um, when I worked for uh, Merck, I would manage, you know, smaller accounts and some of the other reps. When I was the the resident, I remember the person that was over the program said, you're the natural choice to be the chief resident. It's just, an, he said, I, there wasn't even a question of who was going to be the chief resident. Of course, it was going to be you. So I've always had this leadership type of mentality. So when I got to the job that I'm at, I'm at the VA, when I got there, I remember our department had a lot of issues with RVUs, lost encounters, and I quickly realized I'm not busting my tail for free. We need to figure out what's going on here. And so I devised a plan for us to get out of the hole. And my boss, who was the chief of medicine then, realized it. And he said, have you thought about becoming the section chief? When this guy, the guy who's section, section chief retires. And I said, oh, think about it. And in the meantime, he, this guy, has an epitome for life and says, you know what? I don't really want to be the chief of medicine anymore. Why don't you step in and, and act as the chief of medicine? No, I'm just getting done with, you know, a couple of years of being a staff position. I'm like two years into being a staff oh, wow. position, literally. Um, and then I stepped into the acting position for the chief of medicine. You know, it was a huge learning curve. And what I learned is that there are some there are some sacrifices that you do have to make in order to be a manager over a uh, be in management to be in administration. But you don't ever want to lose your clinical your clinical side. Mm. Right. Yeah. And so I fight like tooth and nail to stay in my clinical side as a neurophysiologist. I'm just a super general neurologist. I'm not that deep. Um, I can just do EEGs and like read EM and do EMGs, right? I can just do like the procedures. And I like today was my EMG day. So like, you know, I had a patient that had ALS that I diagnosed with ALS today. It's a, it's it's something that I never want to give up. I never want to give up my clinical work, but I've had to whittle it down to a point that I can do both jobs at the same time. So what does that? look like? Um, like you mentioned, you were, you were reading uh, EEGs today. What does a, a normal week look like or a normal month look like in balancing being a neurologist mm -hmm. and being the chief of medicine? So I, I would say 70% of my day is spent working with other 
subspecialists, trying to help them figure out their budget, trying to help them figure out their personnel issues, trying to help them figure out their clinical issues, if they have clinical disclosures or whatever they need to do. So I have 13 departments that are under me, including neurology. So my day is usually spent in a lot of different meetings in different areas. So I have to, I've learned so much about oncology, dermatology, radiation oncology, Hmm. I mean, all these other sections because I don't, I'm not an internist and the vast majority of the people that I manage are, it's, 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 it's kind of interesting because they have to explain things to me knowing that I did an intern year and was just really just trying to survive. Like, look, I'm not really, I would, we I would, all were, yeah. when they would, when they would say something, I would say, you see, this says neurology, right? You really don't want me doing this. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get to neurology. I'm trying to get out of this intern year of medicine. Um, but it's, it's one of those things where um, I spend a lot of my day doing that. In addition to that though, I'm always have my foot in the door with one of my, I have a a nurse care manager that helps manage all my patients. And I have like subspecialized by patient population are either ALS patients or they're patients who have um, post-traumatic migraines. And so I see a lot of headache patients, a lot of ALS patients, but I usually will fit them in here and there. And I have one half day of like clinic like like just a marathon clinic a week. But then if okay. a patient needs to be seen, she'll look at my schedule and schedule it with my secretary for me to see these random patients throughout the week. And then, like I said, I do procedures. I do EMGs. So I like diagnose carpal tunnel and radiculopathy. But then I'm the only neurologist at my hospital that does EMGs. So like the myasthenia gravis, the Lambert-Eaton you know, diagnosis, all those neuromuscular diagnosis are the ones that I'm making that diagnosis as well. So usually I'm diagnosing ALS like once a month, twice a month, which is crazy. That is, uh, that, that sounds very well balanced, busy, but a lot of balance you get to do. Yeah. yeah, You get to do your, what you train to do, um, while leading other people. That is, that is incredible. As we've kind of went through your story and you've reflected on everything uh, that you've been through, the things that you've accomplished, that the word that I, I picked up reading your bio was retrospection. Can you talk about retrospection, um, looking back, the name of the, the book you wrote was Retrospective Calling. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. So, you know, I feel like all of us have a calling or a purpose, some type of reason for being here. You know, it was too much of a miracle for us to all be born. Once you kind of realize what has to happen for you to be born, there's a reason why you're here. If you believe that there's a higher being that's controlling all of this, there's a reason why he put you here. Um, So Trying to figure that out is what a lot of people are trying to do. They're trying to figure out, why am I here? What is my purpose? And one day I was sitting in church while I was in medical school. And this guy, this random dude got up that I had never, this is a random preacher from out of town, got up and started talking about retrospection. And he said, you know, you, if you sit and look back over your life, you'll see all of the things that God was leading you to and and literally 
if you really look at it, the good and the bad was leading you to the point that you're at right now. And if you really want to look at it even better, he's showing you what your future could be like. He's showing you good or bad, what your future is going to be like. If you continue on this path, this is your future. If you change your path, this is your future. So retrospection to me is a key in looking at what you want your life to be like, how you want your life to, to unfold by looking at your own experiences and analyzing them and then looking forward to see how you're going to do them better or do them differently or, or do them the same. At what point did you say, I have to put all this down to paper, I'm going to write a book? You know, I had been saying I was going to write a book for years, <laughs> for years, to the point that my husband, my husband bought me a laptop and was like, okay, you're going to write this book, let me get by your laptop, bought me a, a little pad of, you know, a pad, like a embrace, you know, really nice little pad that I could write things down on, like Barack Obama, how he writes his books out. Um, so he was like, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And then the pandemic happened. And I was seeing like with with us, we were seeing patients have seizures and we couldn't figure we couldn't stop them because of the virus. Like it was that was and I was it was helpless. It was this helpless feeling seeing all these consults and seeing all these patients die. And I thought, you know what? I how dare me have all this stuff in my head and not get it out. I've got to get it out. And a few years ago, I met a writing coach. I just randomly met this woman at a wedding and I remembered her name and I sent her like a DM on Facebook and said, Hey, are you still a writing coach? I'm thinking about writing a book. And she said, yeah, I'm still doing it. And she got me organized enough to just get up and start writing this book. And so it was a process of me um, getting up at the but crack a dawn every morning <laughs> and literally writing out this book because it had kind of been in my head and I've kind of would stop and write, you know, a paragraph here, a paragraph there, but really getting everything honed in. The pandemic really just kind of catapulted me into just getting my button gear and getting it done because tomorrow's not promised to any of us. That's good. Well, for those of you interested, definitely check out this book, Retrospective Calling, Looking Back to Create Your Path Forward by Dr. Kimberly Johnson Hatchett, MD. Uh, she was so kind and gracious enough to send me a copy of the book. I flipped through it and uh, definitely some gems and some pearls and some things that I'll take from it. I actually look back a lot. That's been my thing. I didn't know it was a, a name for it, retrospection, but I love looking back and I tell myself that I live life without regrets. Um, at some point, I'm sure I may do something that I'll regret, but for the <laughs> most part, I think, <laughs> uh, you know, everything I've done has got me here. Everything happened for a reason, like you've said so many times, and it's all part of your story. Even the things that maybe you, you miss or, or I wish I could change, but if I change them, then what, you know, where would you be? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, you know, and I, I, sometimes you do have regrets. You think, damn, I shouldn't have done that. Or maybe I should have done this, but it's over. It's done. All you can do mm -hmm. is either learn from it or that's all you really can do is learn from it and move forward. So, yeah, I mean, that's like, I remember my husband's very good about that. Cause I always be like, Oh, I want to do this, this, and this. And then when I do it, he'll be like, okay, well, how do you think that went? Tell me how you think that went. 
And I'm like, well, I, what do you think? He said, no, I want you to tell me how you think that went. And so he'll at, force me to sit down and say, well, I could, probably could have done this better. I think I did this well. I think I did. And like he'll force me to look back and really analyze things that I've done. So I think that is something that, you know, having somebody like that in your life is key. It doesn't have to be your spouse. It could be your 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 best friend, your, your you know, whatever. But having somebody like that has really made my existence just better, mm. better, much better. He's a good dude. Like, like I said. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. If you don't have someone like that in your life, then you could pick up a copy of Dr. Johnson Hatchett's book. Sure. Um, if you want to, <laughs> if you want to know more, you can visit her personal web page, Dr. Kimberly Hatchett, Dr. Kimberly J Hatchett.com. Of course, uh, there will be links in the show notes to her website the webpage for the book is retrospectivecalling.com. And then, of course, please follow her on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, Dr. Kim Neurodoc. And again, that link will be in the show notes because you're probably driving your car and you should not be on your phone and driving. <laughs> True. <laughs> Dr. Johnson Hatchett, um, really enjoyed speaking with you, hearing your story, inspiring story about you know leaving one very rewarding career to to step out and and follow your dreams and passion um the way you followed your dreams in your relationships and family a lot to unpack hopefully um our listeners are are, are taking notes and and have learned from uh, everything that you've shared with us well thank you again for having me i've enjoyed talking to you and um yeah i hope they have gotten something from this that would make it even sure. more worthwhile. I'm sure they have. Thank you for joining us on the Black Doctors Podcast because representation matters. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode of the Black Doctors Podcast. For a sign out, I want to talk about a resource specifically for medical students, especially for those of you in your fourth year that are getting towards uh, preparing for match. I've had the opportunity to sit on a number of panels and just kind of give advice. But the number one thing that I've recommended is a Twitter account to follow. The account is Dr. Brian Carmody. It's uh, J.B. Carmody, C-A-R-M-O-D-Y, um, a.k.a. the Sheriff of Sodium. He's, he is a pediatric nephrologist. He practices in Virginia. But his side, uh, side hobby, side hustle, passion is really diving into the match process. He dissects the ERAS information and really sheds some light on kind of the inner workings of the system. He's been following this for years and years and years, and I really enjoy following him on Twitter. He provides a lot of very helpful information, especially if you are preparing to match. I've used his Twitter account to stay relevant, so I'm able to provide better advice to students that are in the match process. But for you in medical school, um, you guys that are in residency or attendings who are actively involved in mentorship, I highly recommend uh, following this Twitter account if you're on Twitter. Um, I think it, uh, it will definitely pay off dividends. He also runs a blog, thesheriffofsodium.com. He's a nephrologist, hence the uh, fixation with uh, sodium. Um, but 
give him a follow. If you want to let him know you heard about him on the show, that's cool. Um, if you have not yet uh, ranked us, uh, given us a review, shared with a friend, please do so as it really helps our show continue to grow. Let us know. We always are receptive to feedback. Uh, what else do you want from us? How can we help increase the diversity that we want to see so badly in our healthcare workforce? I am Stephen, host of the Black Doctors podcast. Thank you for joining us because representation matters. <laughs>